We just finished the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we're going to start a New Testament book in the middle of September, or second, first, second Sunday of September, and, uh, but we're just doing some random things in the, middle, in the meantime. Uh, this is a very simple message. If you have a Bible or an electronic device with a uh, Bible app, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 4. This is just going to be a very, very simple sermon. Hopefully will be, I hope and pray, will encourage you. Um, that's my objective. We're nearing the end of summer. Vacation season is still here. And uh, lots of people are gone, but I'm grateful you're here. We will spend the last third of our, our service sharing together in communion. And I wanted you to know that in case you had not heard. We are having communion today. 2 Corinthians 4 starting at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. One of the attractive things about heaven is being able to meet unique people we have read about but have never met. One of those persons I'm anxious to meet was a devout Christian named Harriet Tubman. Harriet became an undercover operative for a righteous cause, who even during moments of extreme danger demonstrated incredible courage. Born as a slave in the 1820s, at age 12, Harriet refused to help one of her overseers punish another slave. He threw a large metal object at that slave, and she jumped in between them. It struck Harriet in the head and cracked her skull. It left her with permanent injuries such as periodic seizures. Harriet staged a daring and successful escape in 1849, then became a conductor on the Underground Railroad. It is estimated she rescued between 300 and 700 slaves out of cruel and inhumane situations, and she brought them to freedom. Her code name was Moses. She was named after the great emancipator, and she never once lost a single escapee. I might add, she was always armed. During the Civil War, Harriet became a secret spy for the Union Army, working behind enemy lines to spy on Confederate territories before getting information on warehouse locations holding munitions. That information enabled the Union forces to better plan strategic assaults. And she also became the first woman in U.S. history to actually lead a military assault. She had a huge bounty on her head, but she always managed to evade capture. She did that, all that, and so much more because she persevered. She persevered. She persisted. It was difficult at times. But she refused to quit. Notice the definition on the note sheet. To persevere is defined as to persist in a purpose or enterprise. To strive in spite of difficulties. To persist 
in a purpose or enterprise to strive in spite of difficulties. This morning, we're investigating just four simple statements from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians that can contribute to a Christian's resolve to persevere. Statement one, found in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8, Paul said, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Paul said something similar in chapter 7 and verse 5. He said there, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Being tired is a normal human behavior. Contrary to someone I read about, he's a televangelist, part of the positive confession movement that teaches that tiredness and fatigue is unacceptable to the Christian. So this man confessed that he is never tired. He claims he has reached a spiritual state that he does not now experience tiredness and fatigue. So I guess he's more advanced than Paul because Paul said he was tired. That's foolishness because tiredness is a consequence from original sin. Read Genesis 3 verses 17 through 19. Tiredness affects us all as fallen humans. And there are no exceptions to that. That reminds me of a maid that couldn't seem to get going. This woman's employer was frustrated and he said, I don't understand this. Why are you so slow? Can't you do anything fast? She said, yes, sir, I can. I can get tired real fast. (laughs) No one is immune to tiredness. Paul said about himself and his associates, Our bodies had no rest. Unlike the man we just mentioned, Paul said we were tired to the point of exhaustion. And then he said we were troubled on every side. And that is almost an understatement. If Paul's mission brought him to a new village or town, he didn't go to the Marriott. Instead, he went to the local jail and checked out their accommodations because he knew chances were he would end up there. He was a troubled man because he was a spiritual troublemaker. He encouraged people to decide about Jesus, and some people reacted against that. The word translated troubled in chapter 7 and verse 5 is the same Greek word that is translated as hard-pressed in chapter 4 and verse 8. And that word means to press, to press. Paul said we are being pressed. But notice the second half of this phrase, yet not crushed. The word translated as crushed means to cramp or crowd together or to pin and push together. To pin and push together. This was a possible reference to an ancient wrestling match. Wrestling is recognized as man's oldest competitive sport. It was part of the first Olympic Games in 776 B.C. And we're not talking about sumo wrestling. Sumo competitors are just two obese men wearing large diapers pushing each other around. It's not an attractive sport. The current Olympic Games conduct two different categories of wrestling competition. Greco-Roman wrestling, um, said to be almost an exact extension from ancient Greek and Roman wrestlers, and then another more modern wrestling form called freestyle wrestling. In both categories, a competitor is awarded certain points uh, for certain wrestling maneuvers. 
such as a takedown or an escape from a hold or a reversal of a hold, so that someone, one method of winning a match is to accumulate more points um, than the opponent through an allotted time period. But the ultimate objective to the match in either form is to pinning the opponent's shoulders to the mat. Even if a competitor is behind on points, a pin still wins the match. Paul said we have been pressed, we're tired, we're exhausted, we have been troubled, we're pressed. Our shoulders are almost to the mat. We're being pressed, but we refuse to be pinned. The principle this statement demonstrates is this, pressed, but not pinned. Pressed, yes, but not pinned. There are two classifications of people. One are those people who have problems, people who currently have problems. And then, second, there are those people who are about to have problems because problems are inevitable. Problems are unavoidable. There is no problem-free existence this side of heaven. If problems are starting to press our shoulders to the mat, then we need to be tenacious and refuse to be pinned. Pressed, but not pinned. This is a pressure-packed culture, from unemployment problems to financial setbacks to continuing escalating inflation. And yes, we are in an economic recession. There's frustration in public schools or the influx of CRT. There's unexpected illnesses and surgeries. And then there's the unanticipated loss of someone close to us, and nothing compares to that. And there are car problems and marriage problems and parenting problems. Listen to this headline. This is how bad it has become. Most of us are aware that shoplifting is a thing. And often in some regions, shoplifters are never arrested and or prosecuted. And uh, it's a horrific thing. But because people are now shoplifting food items... Some drugstores in New York City are locking up spam. People are stealing spam. I don't understand. I would eat dog food before I would eat spam. <laughs> this is where we have deteriorated to as a nation. People are stealing spam. It's safe to assume there has never been a more stressful age than this one. Since the pandemic, more and more people are suffering from severe depression, and more and more people are committing suicide. Some of us in our congregation have had unbearable, unbearable problems, um, indescribable problems. Some of our people, their shoulders are being pressed into a near-fall position. Some of us are disillusioned and discouraged. One shoulder is starting to touch the mat and the other shoulder is almost there. And now is the time to remember these words from Paul. We are being pressed. Yes, we are being pressed, but we are determined not to be pinned. The next question is, how do we pull that off? How do we get the strength? Where do we get the strength to resist being pinned? Verse 7 has that answer. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Most commentators teach that this is a figurative treasure. This isn't actual literal treasure, buried treasure. No, this is figurative treasure, and this treasure represents the Holy Spirit. The earthen vessels are also figurative. 
and represent our human bodies. So the treasure represents the Holy Spirit and the earthen vessels represent our human bodies. This earthen vessel is a vessel made from the earth itself. The Greek word means baked clay. Baked clay. So these are clay pots. So our actual bodies as Christians are called earthen vessels and clay pots since our bodies originated from the ground. Remember, the first man was made from dust. Inside these earthen vessels is said to be a treasure, and this treasure is the Holy Spirit himself. Remember, God exists as a triune being, meaning that this one being we call God, Yahweh in Hebrew, God exists as three co-eternal and co-equal different persons. God exists as the Father, as the Son, Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is the one God, and altogether these three persons are the same one God. Starting at someone's salvation, all Christians possess the Holy Spirit. That means at the precise moment someone receives Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in and establishes permanent residence inside his body. In a tangible material sense, Jesus is in heaven. He ascended there some 20 centuries ago. But in a spiritual sense, Jesus is inside of us. Colossians 1, verse 27, Christ in you. How is Jesus, if he, in a material sense, is in heaven, how is he then inside us? He is inside us in a spiritual sense in the form of the Holy Spirit who inhabits us beginning at salvation. In theological language, that spiritual transaction is called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes to indwell and inhabit our human bodies starting at salvation. Notice, it is the Holy Spirit operating from inside us that is the one who enables us and energizes us and empowers us because that's something the Holy Spirit has been assigned to do. Acts 1 and verse 8. Just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus announced to those earliest Christians, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it is the Holy Spirit that enables us. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us and enables us to persevere and persist. Now notice the second half of this verse. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Why is the Holy Spirit inside us? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. There it is. Paul said that the power that Christians possess doesn't come from ourselves. This power enabling us to persevere, this power enabling us to resist being pinned, using the language Paul does here, this power comes from God through the Holy Spirit acting inside us. The reason Paul mentions this fact in verse 7 is so that no one for forget that the energizing force behind these statements mentioned in verses 7, 8, and 9, the energizing force behind those statements is the Holy Spirit and not just human self-effort. This isn't another self-help sermon because it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do what we need to do. On our own, we don't have a chance. Remember, the secret to spiritual perseverance isn't the vessel. Our vessels are sometimes fragile. Our vessels are often injured. Our vessels are sometimes diseased. 
Our vessels are sometimes old, as mine is. The secret to perseverance isn't the vessel. The secret to perseverance is inside our vessel, and that's the treasure, and the treasure is God, the Holy Spirit. Notice the lesson. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us and enables us to persevere. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us and enables us to persist and persevere. I heard about a man that met his pastor on the street, and he started to complain about all his troubles. And I assume he had uh, a bunch of them. He said, Reverend, I can tell you right now, it's enough to make a man lose his religion. His pastor paused and then said, no, it's enough to make a man use his religion. Jesus Christ is inside us in the form of the Holy Spirit. And if we trust him, if we depend on him, if we ask him to, then he can enable us to persist and persevere. We can be pressed, yes, but we don't have to be pinned. Second statement is mentioned in verse 8. The second statement is, we are perplexed, but not in despair. The word translated perplexed means to have no way out. To have no way out. Paul said we are perplexed, meaning there doesn't seem to be a way out of the situation we're in. The full statement is we are perplexed, but not in despair. The word translated as despair means to be utterly at a loss and without hope. To be utterly at a loss and without hope. That statement means, although there doesn't seem to be a way out, we're going to find a way. To translate this statement into a modern athletic comparison that Paul couldn't have known about, in a modern context, uh, this describes a football running back whose offensive line has been stacked up. I mean, there's nowhere to go. But somehow this back finds a hole and squeezes through and into the secondary. There are some smaller running backs that have incredible vision and quickness and body control that enables them to find a hole in the line where there is literally no hole to be found. The late and great Walter Payton from the Chicago Bears could do that. And the one athlete that probably did it better than anyone else was the now retired Barry Sanders from the Detroit Lions. All he had to do was find the tiniest crease in the line. And he just exploded into the defensive backfield. The principle that this statement illustrates is no way, but find a way. There's no way on the surface. There doesn't seem to be a way, but find a way. The statement Paul made is we are perplexed, but not in despair. And that means there might not seem to be a way through, or there might not be, seem to be a way out of an unfortunate situation, but we are determined to find one. The famous inventor, Thomas Edison, had assigned one of his best employees a special project. And uh, this project, uh, this man worked on this project for months. And then in frustration, he came to see Mr. Edison and said, Mr. Edison, I'm sorry, I have tried and tried and tried. And it just cannot be done. Edison replied, how often have you tried? This man said, about 2,000 times. Edison responded, then try another 2,000 times. Because at this point, all you managed to do is to find 2,000 things that don't work. Continue trying until you find something that does work. He had the attitude, there doesn't seem to be a way, but we're going to find a way. The point is if, that if something seems impossible, and often it does, then search and search and search until we find a solution. 
Jesus himself said as much. Notice Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Notice three words in verse 7. Ask, seek, and knock. The interesting part is those three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present imperative tense. And that indicates continuing, ongoing action. So in the original language, Jesus said, ask and continue asking. Don't stop. Seek and continue seeking. Don't stop. Knock and continue knocking. Don't stop. And the result of this asking and seeking and knocking is found in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And this all happens because of someone's persistence and perseverance. There doesn't seem to be a way, but find one. This is an increasing permissive culture, and peer pressure is at an all-time high. And especially vulnerable to that pressure are those from emerging generations. This is an editorial from the left-leaning Brooklyn's Brookings Institute. This was printed in the left-leaning Washington Post. And calling those organizations left-leaning is probably an understatement. This is not from a conservative publication. This is not from a uh, Christian publication. This is a comment on eliminating generational poverty. Listen to this. Policy aimed at promoting economic opportunity for poor children must be framed within three stark realities. These are those realities. First, many poor children come from families that do not give them the kind of support that middle-class children get from their families. Second, as a result, these children enter kindergarten far behind their more advantaged peers and on average never catch up and even fall further behind. Third, in addition to the education deficit, poor children are more likely to make bad decisions that lead them to drop out of school, become teen parents, join gangs, and break the law. In addition to the thousands of local and national programs that aim to help young people avoid these life-altering problems, we should figure out, according to this article, we should figure out more ways to convince young people that their decisions will greatly influence whether they avoid poverty and enter the middle class. Let politicians, school teachers, administrators, community leaders, ministers, and parents drill into children the message that in a free society, they enter adulthood with three major responsibilities. Now, don't miss this. According to this article, children enter adulthood with three main responsibilities. These are those three things. And these three things, more often than not, prevent generational poverty. One, at minimum, finish high school. Two, get a full-time job. And three, wait until age 21 to get married and have a child. One more time, finish high school, get a full-time job, wait until age 21 to get married and have a child. It's interesting that all three rules are consistent with a biblical worldview. According to this article, research shows that of those beginning American adults who followed these three simple rules, only 2% ended up in poverty. And almost 75% 
joined the middle class. There are other factors at play to be sure. But from a statistical perspective, obedience to these three simple rules pulls beginning adults away from poverty and pulls them toward the middle class. There's no way. Doesn't seem. But find a way. Another interesting part of the editorial was that the abortion mill called Planned Parenthood complained that telling people the likely consequences of their own actions was, get this, either racist or judgmental. Once more demonstrating that the left just cares about its progressive ideology. It doesn't actually care about people. So remaining celibate, according to this article, until marriage is a critical component to avoiding poverty. One man, one father, told me he had created a unique technique for assisting his, his daughter in rejecting sexual pressure. His teenage daughter was instructed to bring her cell phone on all dates. And if the date... Uh, during the time together, applied sexual pressure, as so often happens. If he does, she was instructed to hand him the phone and announce to him, okay, call my dad and ask him if I can do what you want me to do. If my dad says it's okay, then we're okay and we can do it. That is finding a way through a potential difficult and undesirable situation. This father told me that to date there had been no such related phone calls. <laughs> no way, but find a way. Paul said there doesn't seem to be a way, but through the Holy Spirit inhabiting us, inside us, empowering us, enabling us, we can find a way. God has made a way. We just have to trust Him to help us find it. Statement three is found in verse nine. Persecuted but not forsaken. Persecuted but not forsaken. The word translated as persecuted means to be pursued or to be followed. To be pursued or to be followed. And the word translated as forsaken means to be abandoned, deserted, or left behind. Abandoned, deserted, or left behind. Paul said we're being followed, but we're not left behind. This is another athletic analogy. In this statement, Paul compared himself to a runner in a race. He likened himself to being ahead in this race, but he was being chased by other competitors. Some of the other runners are right behind him, breathing down his neck, but he's determined to push himself to the finish line first. Paul said he's being chased, and it might be close, but he was determined not to be caught. This happened just this past month at the World Track and Field Championships in Eugene, Oregon. The 100-meter race determines who is considered the world's fastest human. I guess that's because it's, that's the shortest race in the competition and uh, generates the most speed. The favorite going into that race was Fred Curley. He's a phenomenal athlete, and he won that race. But it was so close, the time difference between the first place gold medal and the third place bronze medal was just 0.02 seconds, meaning a difference of just two one-hundredths of a second. 
Silver medalist Marvin Brady and bronze medalist Trayvon Bromel were chasing Mr. Curley and were so close, but he refused to be caught. The principle this statement demonstrates is chased but not caught. Chased, yes, but not caught. Being chased is a part of the Christian experience. If we are determined to be different, in a previous congregation, I, I, I met a woman. I don't remember the circumstances of our meeting. I remember, though, meeting this woman who said she wasn't at all interested in church. And that isn't unusual. Um, I meet people often who have no interest in spiritual matters. She said she wasn't interested in church and added if she were, she wouldn't be interested in the church that I pastored at that time. And I was curious to understand the reasoning for that, and she seemed anxious to tell me the reason for that. She said, because you are the minister who conducted the funeral service for my brother-in-law. And she was so upset at me. Her face is turning red. She was practically screaming at me. And she said, what you did was horrible. In fact, my husband had to restrain me three times from coming up in the middle of the service and telling you to get the blank out of there. She just blasted me. And I'm standing there, not responding, just listening. And she said, it seemed like all you did was talk about becoming a Christian and going to heaven. And she just continued to read me the riot act. And actually, I had no defense. She was correct in that accusation. Because if I'm requested, and I never, ever charge for my services at a funeral or wedding, but if I'm asked to conduct a funeral or memorial service, then 100% of the time, I address the subject of heaven, and I tell people that Jesus and Jesus alone is the open sesame to that heaven. And I do that because I don't have a more relevant and more hopeful message to bring to grieving people. And so I didn't apologize. Persecution and personal harassment can be chasing me, but I refuse to be caught no matter who's upset at me. Josh McDowell, the famous apologist, just said this, culture has become so intolerant of Christianity that it is now impossible to be both faithful and popular. It is now impossible to be both faithful and popular. I was a huge fan of Billy Graham. This past fall we visited the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, he's someone else I want to meet in heaven. I have seen him from the crusade audience preaching uh, two different times, but I never had the privilege of meeting him. He had enormous popularity. If Billy Graham were alive today, he would not have that same popularity. He would be hated because his message would be so counterculture. It is impossible to be both faithful and popular, and that's the reason I have chosen faithfulness to God over popularity with man. Harassment comes. Persecution comes. I'm going to be chased, but I'm not going to be caught. There is no one technique to help us avoid persecution as a Christian. And that is, in a spiritual sense, to know nothing, to have nothing, to do nothing, and to be nothing. 
Because in a state of absolute spiritual nothingness, we are literally no threat to Satan and his forces of darkness. So he just ignores us. He has other work to do. We're not a problem to him. So he ignores us. Be an undercover Christian. And there's no problem. Be a secret saint, and there's no problem. But determined to be an example of godliness and Christian commitment, and that creates satanic opposition. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 reads, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not could, not might, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The situation seems so far-fetched to those of us in the West, since we are still part of a free and open democratic society that is changing rapidly. And so it, it doesn't seem realistic to be applicable to us, but I believe it could be. This situation has happened in other countries, such as communist China, still happening there, different Islamic nations under Sharia law, If at some point we are made to stand because of our position as a Christian, we are made to stand in front of a wall. If our hands are tied behind our backs, if a blindfold is wrapped around our heads, and if we hear someone announce in a loud voice, ready, aim, fire, and then in a nanosecond a large caliber bullet buries itself in our brains, if that happens, and it could happen in our lifetime, It is important to understand that opposition from Satan still hasn't caught up to us because Satan cannot go where we're going. We're being chased, but we cannot be caught. Statement four, also found in verse nine, is struck down but not destroyed. Struck down but not destroyed. The word translated as struck down means to be thrown down or knocked down. And the word translated destroy means to fully destroy or to lose. To lose. Paul said we've been knocked down, but not to the point of losing. The athletic connection to this statement is boxing. In ancient times and in some modern cases, boxing could be a bare-knuckle fight, and that could get savage. In boxing, this phrase means we might be knocked down, but we refuse to be knocked out and lose the match. There are some boxers that are susceptible to getting knocked down. It happens to them often. But it's almost impossible to knock them out. Rocky Marciano was the only undefeated professional world boxing champion from any weight class. There's never been another. His career record was 49 wins and no losses, and 43 of those victories were knockdowns. And one of those knockout victims was a famous and great Joe Lewis. Muhammad Ali is still considered the greatest. And if there was ever any doubt, you could just ask him and he would reinforce that. (laughs) I am not questioning his greatness as a fighter. He was a 1960 Olympic champion and the only fighter to win the heavyweight title three times. But from a statistical perspective, his record was inferior to Rocky Marciano's. Muhammad Ali did fight more fights. He had 56 wins, just 37 from knockouts, and he had five losses. I just, I mentioned that just to illustrate the comparative greatness 
of Marciano. Marciano was only 5 feet 10 inches in height. He weighed just 185 pounds, but he defeated larger men because he had a bulldog tenacity that couldn't be beaten. He first fought for the heavyweight title in 1952 against champion Jersey Joe Walcott. Marciano was knocked down in the first round, but he got up and continued to fight. He was behind in scoring after seven rounds, but Marciano refused to concede the bout and scored a knockout himself in the 13th round. The final fight in his career was against the light heavyweight champion Archie Moore. Marciano was once more knocked down in the earlier rounds, but he got up and knocked Archie down three times and then knocked him out in the ninth round. Rocky Marciano could be knocked down. He often was. Mark Marciano could be cut, and he often was. He could be injured. Sometimes he was, but he couldn't be knocked out. The principle we get from the statement is knocked down, but not knocked out. Knocked down, yes, it happens, but not knocked out. David was knocked down after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He was definitely slower at getting up than he should have been, but ultimately he did get up and he authored some of the most, his most famous psalms. He was knocked down, but not knocked out. The strong man Samson was knocked down after he de dated Delilah and she cut his hair. But even though he was in prison, eventually he got up and was used of God to put to death thousands of Philistines. He was knocked down, but not knocked out. Elijah was knocked down after he ran like a coward from Jezebel's death threat. But he got up and found Elisha to succeed him as the next great Old Testament prophet. He was knocked down, but not knocked out. Simon Peter was knocked down after he denied Jesus three separate successive times. But he got up and preached one of the most powerful sermons of all time at Pentecost. All of these men were knocked down, all of them. But all of these men refused to be knocked out. And the list goes on and on and on. Each Christian in this room has or is going to, at some point in time, going to be knocked down from something. Something is going to knock us off our feet. But remember that success is getting up just one more time then we get knocked down. It is said there are two different reactions to being knocked down. First, there are splatters. Splatters. This is not a theological word. Splatters, to better understand someone that splatters, imagine dropping a gallon of paint off a 20-story building. That can of paint would hit the pavement and literally blow apart, and the paint would just splat and stick to the sidewalk and street. People that are splatters get knocked down, stick to the bottom like glue, and just do not get up. Second, though, there are bouncers. People that are bouncers hit rock bottom, but then pull themselves together and bounce back up. Bouncers just cannot be kept down. Bouncers can be knocked down, but not kept down. The question is not, are we going to get knocked down? That is not the question. Because at some point, it is inevitable. At some point, we're going to be knocked down. But the question is, after getting knocked down, are we a splatter or are we a bouncer? It's sad to see someone get knocked down. 
but it's worse if someone that has been knocked down stays down. So if you're down, get up. It doesn't matter how big a mess we find ourselves in. It doesn't matter the size and or seriousness of the mistake and or sin we might have committed. God is a God of another chance. So get up. Get up. We're knocked down. But we don't have to be knocked out. Someone has said there are three stages to the Christian life. Stage one is when we think, this isn't so hard. But that stage doesn't last long. The second stage starts to set in, and we're getting the impression that this is more difficult than we thought. And it is. Stage three is the moment we realize that being a successful Christian isn't hard. No, it's absolutely impossible. Because if Jesus who is inside of us in the form of the Holy Spirit, is not permitted to be in charge of us, then practical Christianity is impossible. Remember the Carrie Underwood number one single, Jesus, take the wheel? That's where we need to be. If Jesus isn't behind the wheel, we don't have a chance. If self is in the driver's seat instead of Jesus, we're going to spend more time on the seat of our pants than standing on our feet. Satan is going to charge at us from across the spiritual ring and he's going to hit us with a right hook and a left jab and he's going to body punch us until our knees wobble and he's going to hit us with everything but the Christian but the kitchen sink and if we aren't standing in the strength that only Jesus can provide us then we're going to drop to the canvas like a rock the referee's going to count one two three but don't stay down We're down, yes, but don't stay down. Get up. Four, five, six. Don't stay down there and eat a face full of canvas. Get up. Get up. Seven, eight, nine. Get up. Get up from sin. Get up from devastating loss. Get up from failure. Get up from intimidation. Get up from an addiction. Get up from unfaithfulness. Get up from a fractured marriage. Get up from depression. Get up from doing basically nothing as so many people seem to be doing. Satan might have knocked us out, yes. Knocked us down, yes. But don't let him knock us out. Famous football coach Lou Holtz. He's a motivational speaker now in his retirement. He said there are three options available to us if something goes wrong. Something goes wrong, we have three options. We can be frustrated, intimidated, or motivated. So if we're knocked down, we ought not to be frustrated. We ought not to be intimidated. We ought to be motivated to get back up. Get up. Paul said this in these three verses. Christian, we're being pressed. That's okay. But don't be pinned. Christian, there doesn't seem to be a way out. That's okay. But find a way. God can open the way. Christian, we're being chased. And being chased hard, but don't get caught. And Christian, although we might be knocked down, we can refuse to get knocked out. We can persevere if we would trust him. Let's bow our heads, would we, as we pray. I'm going to ask the gentlemen who are going to serve communion to come at this time. After I pray, we're going to sing a congregational song so as to allow our children and their workers to come in and sit with us and be here for the communion portion of our service.
Father in heaven, thank you for this time, this lesson. It's just so simple. Nothing profound in it. But we all get discouraged and we all get defeated. We all get down. And God, help us to just keep on keeping on. Help us to persist. Help us to persevere. Not to quit. Not to throw in the towel. Not to hang it up. You know, it's so easy to do those things. And I've been tempted so many times. God, just help us. Help us to be Christians who are determined, no matter what, to persevere and make a difference. I know that'll please you, and that's our ultimate desire. I pray you'll bless this time we sit at your table and bless this, uh, these moments that we have to remember the death, the very special and meaningful death of your son Jesus. And I thank you and I ask it in his name. Amen.